and welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast with your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host... Kevin Toffel. I don't actually know why. I guess I'm also a co-host if you're my host, Kevin, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It, it works either way. The best, the best news, though, is regardless of who's hosting, we're on iTunes now. Oh, you stole my thunder. <laughs> okay, congratulations. Yes, we are on iTunes now at the Internet of Things podcast. We have a lovely blue logo that you guys are familiar with if you grab this podcast on the website. Um, so go point your RSS feeders the right way or your I don't iTunes. Know, your, or iTunes. your podcast app in, on your iOS device or whatever you use. Yes, however you get to it. Now you can get to it on iTunes. And yay. Yay. All right, so on to the meat of the show. We will not spend the whole thing celebrating iTunes. We will start. <laughs> we did that before the show for an hour. <laughs> it was exciting. There were there was no there were there was no alcohol, so unfortunately, the show will not be any loopier than normal. I probably won't sing. All right, <laughs> we'll start the show with. Let's see. Let's start the show with shopping because it's so fun. Even Everybody loves to shop. Everyone does. The big news on the shopping front for connected devices is Target. The day after Memorial Day, May 26, we shall see in Target stores a new home automation center. Um, we know actually that it will host a Piper home, all-in-one home security system, but we don't know what else is going to be in there. It's going to mm. devote eight feet of shelf space to other home automation products. That is very good because that is a sign, uh, a further sign, I guess I should say, of the home automation and smart home sector going more mainstream. You want an even cooler sign that it's going mainstream? I picked up a sure. Martha Stewart Living magazine and you know what was in it? It was like eight devices that will save you money and make your home smarter. And in it was like the August locks. There was a nice. drop cam. There, there were, let's see, I didn't recognize the thermostat that they had chosen, but there were several devices that we talk about on the show. And I was like, go, Martha. Very yeah. Exciting. I'm guessing she didn't have August locks where she was before she came back out of, well, never mind, I'm not going to go there. Do not talk, do not speak <laughs> ill of Martha. <laughs> don't, don't back talk. Don't sass the Martha. <laughs> do not. August Lock, right. when she was in prison, August was just, it wasn't even invented yet. I know, I know. So... Target now has a home automation section. I will say, as someone who visits the home automation section in her local Staples and Home Depot a lot, I'm going to hope that Target keeps theirs a little bit better stocked. The, mm. the home automation section in my Home Depot is constantly picked over, and a lot of the time it's an end cap, and it mostly has the Wink products and then the Nest stuff, and then the rest of the stuff is kind of spread throughout the store, yeah. I find. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been to my staples, and I've looked around, and you know, it looks like they have the right idea with the whole cluster of smart home stuff, but it just doesn't, it just kind of feels like it's tucked in a corner to me all the time, and yes, it's a little uh, in disarray every time I go as well, so I, I don't quite understand that, but. I was hoping, well, staples has the stuff actually hooked into like a I'm trying to think of the words for it. There's a there's a demo area kind of like so you can press buttons and make the lights go on and whatnot, at least the one one that I visit. So that's that's actually nice. Home Depot doesn't seem to have a lot of education. Mm -hmm. So and I haven't actually been to Best Buy in forever. So I'll have to go check out Best Buy's in Target's once it's up and we'll report back on who has the best retail experience for the smart home. 
Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, you guys can also tell us um, your thoughts at info at iotpodcast.com. All right, moving to our next order of news, let's talk about connected cars, Kevin. Ooh, yeah, there's a sexy topic for you because uh, it's it's interesting. Most of the of the growth now for the carriers is not coming from smartphones because hey, pretty much everybody has one in the U.S. Tablets is, are actually the big addition, I guess, uh, when you look at net subscribers in the in the first quarter of the year. And we have some data from our good buddy Chet and Sharma. He just had his quarterly U.S. Uh, mobile market update that came out. And some interesting bits that came out to my eyes were that machine-to-machine uh, -machine connections and car connections accounted for 39% of the total net additions for all the carriers. And who's the leader here? It looks like it's AT&T, which probably not a surprise if people have read our past coverage over the years of M2M uh, stuff. But AT&T's connected car business will be a billion-dollar revenue generator this year, says Chetton. And... Uh, that's pretty impressive. In fact, out of the uh, 1.2 million wireless net additions in the first three months of this year, 684,000 of them were cars, which was 62% of their total net ads. So that's a big deal. I mean, a billion-dollar revenue generator right there. Yeah, and that was a lot of numbers right there. So that's, <laughs> that's a billion dollars out of the whole cell phone industry or AT&T's total – do you have AT&T's total – revenue for the quarter or for the year? Is it I don't have it for the year. I do not have it for the year. So I don't know what percentage of this is. Uh, I was looking at it more along the lines of, you know, currently it's it's the biggest growth driver in their net additions. It is certainly big. I'm not going to say mm -hmm. it's not. And AT&T has clients like Tesla. So, you know, I would buy a Tesla if I could. Although I will say having, I, I'm kind of shopping around for a new car. Mm -hmm. And actually just last week, the Obama administration, or rather the Department of Transportation actually fast-tracked the vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle wireless communication, which is a, mm. it's, it's in the Wi-Fi band or mm -hmm. the upper levels of the Wi-Fi band. And it's basically a wireless communication protocol that's going to let cars talk to each other and basically the idea is they'll be able to say like I'm here I'm here don't hit me don't hit me and the idea is they're going to mandate this to come into vehicles starting in 2017 and then they'll they'll start adding it into vehicles and you know it's going to be a while before this yeah. is real so there's car to car talking so that's v2v is what they're calling it and then mm -hmm. there's vehicle to infrastructure and that's like cars talking to signs and toll booths and in the mm -hmm. streets themselves. That all dovetails with the autonomous cars. Though That's way down the line, I think, in, in terms of mainstream. But in the meantime, this is a nice stepping stone to get the cars a little bit smarter so that when one of them that's three cars ahead of you suddenly breaks, the cars behind it already know, even if the driver can't see that. Oh, the V to V? Mm -hmm. Yes. And actually, the uh, caddies, the Caddy CTS, so the fancy high-end Cadillacs, will actually have V2V in those cars starting mm -hmm. in 2017. Mm. So, But as a person who right now in 2015 and maybe the 2016 models is looking at cars, I'm looking at all this technology, even, even LTE, and trying to look at like what kind of car tech is going to be in there. And I'm like, holy cow, maybe I should start leasing my vehicle because my current mm. car which I'll admit, guys, I bought it in 2005, doesn't even have Bluetooth. 
and I've had it for 10 years now. And I'm like, oh my goodness, if I keep my next car that I buy, you know, in 2016 for 10 years, it's going to be like a dinosaur. All the other cars are going to be talking at, talking about it behind its back. Bluetooth, that's like so 2006. I mean, come on. Exactly. We're talking about car-to-car Wi-Fi. So just thinking about that, I, I am curious, and I'll let you guys know as this this journey for a new car progresses, but the wireless tech and the car connectivity you know, even even talking to, you know, getting getting my wireless access in there, it's it's kind of complicated. I'm like, yeah. lease or buy? That's okay. a good question. Cause, and it's funny because our lease on the 2013 Chevy Volt actually runs out in October. So we're going to be looking at something. And chances are we're going to look at the 2016 Volt. Oh, it's I, new. I've been looking at it too. <laughs> it's new. It's new. It's redesigned and has a fake fifth seat in the back, but that, I'm not going to go there right now. Um, but more importantly, more battery range and so on, and that'll go nicely with our solar panels on the roof. Um, I just don't know if they have uh, 4G LTE connections in there. I think General Motors has been pretty hot and heavy on that, though. They have. I, I'm pretty sure it does, actually. So Will I get it? I don't know. I don't know if I want another bill. That That is the question. Yeah. All right. So we will discuss that, I'm sure, in the future. In the meantime, let's talk about this crazy new, this is more a business tech, but we're going to talk about how it might apply to consumer homes, which is the Honeywell Command Wall. I think this is, I, I think this is like really cool, but I also think this is overkill. And so what this is, Honeywell on Tuesday announced a, we'll call it, they call it the command wall. I, I look at it as like the touch screen that's in Minority Report or any other science fiction movie where you get the characters and they're facing this giant, you know, screen and they're just like flinging data left and right. And they're <laughs> opening video screens and things are popping up and it's amazing. Uh, that is exactly what this is. And the cool thing about it is it's infinitely customizable and you pull in data. It's designed for commercial buildings. They've got it customers right now who are trying it include quote-unquote landmark skyscrapers, data centers, airports, hospitals, and these customers are integrating their access control, so their their security systems, mm -hmm. their video camera feeds, basic... Maybe some HVAC stuff too? Yeah, sensor data, HVAC, employee records, and their other like their own customer files. And then they're also bringing in outside data like Google Maps data or files they might get from like law enforcement or publicly available act like data. Mm -hmm. So they're pulling in all this data to create basically their own dashboards. And it's kind of amazing to see it in action. It, it actually is. And it's surprising that it's coming from Honeywell for one, because I, I wouldn't call them a cutting edge IT type company. I watched the video, and maybe we can link to it in the show notes. It's really neat because all of these different smart devices and or sensors and such, you just tap on them. Like, say, you tap on an icon of a video camera, and boom, the feed just pops up right there. And there's all these little touch points and, and information flowing all over the place here. And, you know, I remember working in IT and data centers for almost 15 years before I started writing. And, you know, I had a dashboard that helped me manage servers and routers and such, but this is like, a hundred times beyond that. I mean, this is this is just out there, and it, it looks really nice. And it's worth noting that Honeywell will work. It will work with Honeywell sensors, but it'll also work with Honeywell's competitors. And 
as for the data that's pulling in, it pulls it in via, you know, various APIs and it attempts to pull it in like from other data formats. And like Kevin said, it's, it's crazy that it's coming from a building management kind of vendor um, as opposed to an IT company, but maybe that's because these guys don't have skin in the game, but I would love to see something like this in my house. Mm -hmm. Best Buy sells a home hub system called the Peak and it has an actually a similar user interface that can show you kind of what's happening in your home. And they have a partnership with Zuby, which is a device you can stick in your car's diagnostics port. And that will show you where someone's car is in real time. So if you have a teenage driver, for example, you can see their car from the dashboard of the peak, which is, is kind of this idea. Mm -hmm. But it'd be really cool if you could throw that up on kind of like your TV screen or just like a dedicated screen in your house instead of having to go through the peak dashboard. And then maybe you could combine it with your Evernote shopping list or, you know, any other system. Yeah. I mean, this is this is like uh, dashboard 2.0. I and mean, this is this is impressive. I'm kind of really, really excited about this. But maybe that's just me and my desire <laughs> my desire for customizable dashboards i'm surprised i really am i'm really surprised that we don't have something like this already it's it's kind yeah. of sad for me so, well yeah i mean when you see it it's like a, it's like well gee common sense i mean you throw all these things together get them talking to each other get the data all easily touchable and viewable and everything else and it's like why isn't anybody else doing this there is an app called numerous it's actually ios only and they they pull in any number related data and they mm -hmm. throw it up on a tablet kind okay. of in a dashboard so that's sort of like that and i think they have some sort of watch integration but again not nearly as open or seemingly as flexible mm -hmm. so and again i have not played with this because i do not own a landmark skyscraper <laughs> a data center a hospital or an airport but I would really like to. <laughs> we'll work on that. We'll we'll do a Kickstarter for you. There we go. Stacy would like to own an airport. Please. I would just like to try out this this Honeywell command center. That's true. Maybe I should just call Honeywell and see if I can get one for my house. Maybe, yeah. Then maybe they'll let you take over somebody else's skyscraper for a day. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> that would be sweet. Rent a building. There we go. All right. Yeah. Are we ready for our innovatively named segment? New segment? What's it called? It's the five minute review. Dun ba -ba -ba. dun dun. Oh, I like your you do you do our sound effects, Kevin. Ba -ba -ba. All right. Kevin, I think you've got our review of the week. I do. It's it's actually a a, a website, an online database, uh, as it were, of smart home products. And it's super useful. If you want to see it, you want to go to smarthomedb.com. And when you go there, you'll see this online database of various uh, home smart home components, hubs, um, product reviews. Uh, there, there's all kinds of views. Since it's an online database, they slice and dice this information any way you want it. So if you want to see what's compatible with iOS or with Android, you can just click the compatibilities tab and start picking out products. And it'll tell you what works with your your smartphone operating system, for example. Um, there's, it does the same thing with apps, with companies, and just products in general that are related to smart homes. Also nice is 
product reviews by people who actually have bought these products. So, you know, you can take a look and see the Philips Hue Bridge has four and a quarter stars out of five, and 103 people have reviewed it. If you want to see the compatibilities, you can just click the little, they call it uh, a compatibilities works with graph. You click that for any product, which I just did for the Philips Hub, and now I've got this ginormous graph of all these different products that work with it from Quirky and Staples and Philips, well, of course, because Philips makes the hub, uh, Nest, Lutron, Belkin. So you can see before you actually buy smart home products, you can actually kind of plan out a little bit better, I think, um, because everything is right here. You can see what's compatible with what, what products work with which, which have been highly rated, which haven't been highly rated. There's prices for all of this. Um, so it's a, it's a really nice, simple way of finding more information out about your smart home before you actually invest in your smart home, if that makes sense. It does. Although I wouldn't say that was a five minute thing. I would also, <laughs> I would add that there is a, a, there's a section on cloud server versus yes and no. For those of you guys who hate sending your data to the cloud, mm. this is actually kind of a nice little segment because I know there's a small, or maybe it's a growing majority. I don't know. It's a small minority actually that might be growing that wants to keep their data on premise. And for those of you, this actually gives you the limited number of products that will let you do that. And yeah, so that way you can see if it's a standalone product or it's based in, you know, the cloud and you're sharing data. So in Kevin found this, but I will say that actually this has been shared with me by like two or three people. So thank you guys for sharing this with us. And it it has a instruction set. So it's mm -hmm. it's really just a nice it's a very nice kind of database and product to look at. So check it out. I will include it in the show notes for you. And hopefully you guys can spend hours, you know. You can get lost in this thing. You can. And you can spend mm -hmm. probably a lot of money after getting lost in this <laughs> thing. And Lord help you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's it for us this week. And stay tuned because we have an awesome guest. We have Rob Coneybear. And he is a partner at Shasta Ventures. And we are talking about what devices will become connected and smart and which will stay decisively analog. Hey, everybody, we are back with the Internet of Things podcast, and I have a wonderful guest for us today. It is Rob Cunnybear, who is a managing director and co-founder at Shasta Ventures. Hi, Rob. Thrilled to be here with you. Thanks for having me. I am so excited. So I asked you on the show a couple weeks ago because you wrote, I'm going to say it's an amazing blog post, which, you know, might sound oh, a that's little... Sweet. Isn't that, isn't that nice? Um, so the blog post was called What Will Stay Defiantly Analog? And in it, you kind of analyzed basically what products are going to be connected and how those will, will look. And your, your three categories were, do you remember them or do you want me to break it down for you? We can go back through them, but I'm happy to walk through them right now. The three were products that will disappear in the digital age. So if you think of newspapers and standalone cameras. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have products that remain defiantly analog, and that would be things like writing instruments and notebooks, and you can see how many people still buy moleskin notebooks today. And in between, it's hard to say, there's a number of products that will act similarly, but they'll become connected and evolve over time into new categories. To me, the most exciting, I, I took issue with some of your things, like you have some thoughts about the kitchen we're going to talk about. But sure. 
I, I really wanted to kind of think about the things that become connected and evolve over time, which is where I imagine you're probably making a lot of your bets as a venture capitalist. Is that a fair assumption? Oh, that's, that's absolutely true. So in this category, I think of it as a spectrum. There's obviously, right now, I feel like we're adding intelligence to products that kind of on a one-off basis. So I'm thinking about things like my Nest or like my Philips Hue lights that act alone and they provide some sort of value or entertainment. And then when I look in the future, I start thinking, like you, you mentioned, like connected chairs. And I feel like those things probably gain more value when they become part of an ecosystem. And I'm really excited about that. But I'd be curious, how do you kind of see that evolution in products? Well, I think initially, and for the next five, maybe even 10 years, you'll see silos continue to be the main way in which we see connected devices come into our worlds. And I think part of it is because people tend to think that way. So if you're out here in Silicon Valley, you might get excited about the idea of, does your thermostat talk to your sauna system, talk to your garage door opener, talk to your coffee maker? But I think the reality is it's the silos that people really care about. It's, would I like to have music in my house? Would I like to have a thermostat that programs itself? And I think a lot of the other scenarios have drawbacks that people don't really think through, and there are reasons that you haven't seen companies that have been focused on building these ecosystems that you're referring to, why you haven't really seen those take off. And what are some of these drawbacks? I, I can think of as a user, the hours I spend making things connect and work together is probably a big drawback, but from your perspective, what are you thinking about? Well, I like, I like to think about use cases, and I like to think about how a consumer would really interact with a connected device. So one of the examples, the funny examples that people like to use is talking about the Internet-connected coffee maker and this idea that your house can figure out when you wake up, when you're headed downstairs, and automatically brew a cup of coffee for you. But turning on a coffee maker and starting it brewing is only a, a small part of the problem. So when I think about making a cup of coffee, I have to clean the coffee maker. Uh, even if I'm using Keurig, I still have to load the coffee maker. I have to put the packets in there. I have to put a clean mug in there. If I'm using a coffee maker that grinds beans, I have to fill it with beans. I have to put a filter in. I have to put water in. That's about 95% of the problem. The actual turning on the coffee maker is only 5% of the problem. And if I think about every, say, 10 or 20 times I use the coffee maker, I'd much rather go down and turn it on five minutes before I actually need it than to have it one in 10 times or even one in 20 times activate at the wrong time, and then I come down and I have a cold pot of coffee, and it's actually going to be two or three times as long to get the coffee as it would be otherwise. So when I look at something like that, I start to think that what would be far more interesting is if the coffee maker is able to tell when I actually need to order more beans and do things like that. And that's, in my view, is really more of a siloed activity where the coffee maker is getting its materials as opposed to it reacting to other things in my smart home. Got it. Okay. So are you excited about Amazon's fulfillment? I'm trying I think to... that's, a, that's a very interesting example. So if you take a look at the idea of putting a little button on your washing machine that when the bottle starts to get empty, the bottle might reorder. So you could imagine, say, in 10 years, you have bottles that have free Wi-Fi built in. They can tell when they're empty. But 
they might not know whether there's more bottles around the house. But the idea of having a replenishment button right there is, I think, a pretty interesting one. And I think in a lot of areas where you have consumables, the Internet of Things, and starting to incorporate that into either buttons or self-replenishment services is a very interesting glimpse into the future. So I like that. I like the idea of replacement or kind of, as so as opposed to just connecting things around your house, a connected object, you could think about it as having kind of a replacement service built in. I also am really excited about, and I'm curious your thoughts on education. So, and this is actually one of the reasons why I'm interested in the connected kitchen. And a coffee maker might not be a great example of this unless you have a really high-end coffee maker, but devices that that know what they're doing and can can teach you or offer recipes or ways to to improve your coffee. So in the coffee maker thing, maybe my coffee maker, you know, will give me my two shots of espresso and then it'll also because I've told it I want a latte, it will tell me how much milk I need to put in there and how long I need to steam in it and at what temperature. And all of those things could become immensely valuable. Especially, I, I think a lot of that may get baked in, but it ends up getting baked into an iPad or an iPhone that connects to that device. So you can opt into that information and you can do it, but to actually control the milk that goes in or control the sugar that goes in, independent of your measuring it yourself with a very, very simple measuring device, those devices have mechanical moving parts and tend to break more often. It's why you see you know, multi-thousand dollar espresso machines is because they have a lot of moving parts inside. And being from Italy, a lot of them break all the time. So I think in the, the connected kitchen, it's about what are you trying to do? What are you trying to solve? You still have to wash the pots and pans. You still have to order the food. You still have to measure a lot of the food. I think there are interesting models that are coming along like Forage and other companies that deliver food and and proportions or portion sizes that make sense. But at the same time, I think that food is relatively inexpensive and it is an area where there's a bit of artistry and a high social element that I think people really enjoy in the kitchen. So that, that's why I have some skepticism about the speed at which you see the connected kitchen really start to take off. And I understand, like I, I agree with a lot of that. I guess I see things, I see because I like to cook so much, I see a generation of friends of mine, for example, and people who are even younger who don't know how to cook. And I see things like Meld is a good example. It's a Kickstarter for, a, it's both a, a knob that you put on your stove and a temperature, a thermometer that you drop in a pot. And what it does is it, in conjunction with your iPad, it tells you basically how hot something is on your stove and then you tell it what you're making and it tells you kind of it controls the the temperature on your like i'm trying to think of what that is that oh yeah no i think it's a great example because think about how many recipes we all have that say hey you'd like to turn the oven to 375 degrees and we all know that that oven could be anywhere from 325 degrees to 425 degrees or the temperature of the burner one stove I put it at medium, another I put it at low, but it's the same amount of heat getting put into the dish that you're trying to cook. 
So I think that type of problem, you see better and better tools, but they're still similar tools. They're, they're measurement tools. But the idea of automating more of the process of cooking as opposed to improving the individual tools, that's where my skepticism comes from. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I, I can think of dozens of tools that I would be so excited to have a little bit more intelligence in. And we're not quite there yet because I don't think the, the connectivity and the intelligence isn't cheap enough yet. But, I, you know, I would love a spoon that could measure viscosity so when I'm making, you know, a sauce, it could be like, okay, now we're there. Or now keep, that starts going. to make sense. I'm talking more about whether you automate things. But the idea of building better tools the way that people would like to make them. So looking at a stove, you can see all the variations that you would have. But the idea of being able to build devices that are very accurate and repeatable, I think having better knives, better spoons, better dishes, you know, all those things make sense. Okay. Well, see, we, we weren't so far off. And... <laughs> But I think at the same time, you're not going to see a cheese grater go away, which is a decidedly low-tech device. Oh, now see. (laughs) when you think about food preparation, so much of what's important about food preparation is the moment at which you cut it or slice it or open it up is when you're releasing flavors and aromas and all the things that make cooking so magical and fun. It's true, although I would love a little bit more high-tech built into my kitchen. And this is something I... I have no idea if we'll get there, but I was reading about IKEA actually has a, I wouldn't call it an RFP, but they have like a vision for the connected kitchen. And one of the things they're showing off, and I'll be very clear for everyone listening, this does not exist today. This is something IKEA is talking about and looking for. But one of the things they were showing was something like a smarter countertop. So it, it kind of had a sense of what you were putting on it, either through a computer and a projector, like a camera and a projector kind of setup that said, oh, this is a fish. And then it would project things onto the fish that said, like, here's how you're going to like debone it. And, and something like that, that would be hugely valuable as... I think it's interesting, but I think that the reality of where those things would be would be a lot like... Those are probably 40, 50 years out, the technologies that would be able to track where the fish is and then put the deboning information projected onto the fish as a ways out. I think that some of the visions that people have for the kitchen right now are a lot like when people were expecting self-driving cars back in the 50s and 60s. It's still about another 50 years out. Oh, 50 whole years. All right. Well, <laughs> that's that's really depressing. Let's talk about things that you think will disappear. Um, There's a couple things that I I would love to get your thoughts on. So books, are they going to disappear or remain defiantly analog? That's a very interesting one because they they do have the advantage of instant boot time, but that's going away. The, The thing that I like about books and the thing that I do when I read books is I like to annotate physically. And it's been very hard for me to get used to the idea of using Amazon to annotate. So when I use a Kindle, I can see who else has annotated a given section. I can see comments that people might have made. There's all sorts of interesting advantages to the hive mind, so to speak, when you're working with textbooks and other things. I think books have a much longer tail than what you see with newspapers right now because when people look at that object, And when I'm in my library at home, it's absolutely filled and stuffed with books. 
when I look at that book, it brings a memory back in a way that I'd never get in the digital domain. And it inspires me and helps me think about other things. So it's the physical artifact that I think people find interesting and appealing. Now, at the same time, a lot of that is just how I think about books and I interact with books. And what I find with my kids, my young kids, is that they seamlessly go between both modes. They still enjoy books. They enjoy picking up physical books and reading books. But they'll very, very seamlessly move over to using a Kindle as well. And they really don't appear to have a preference between one and another. And I think it's the art, I think it's the tactile sensation of a book that is very different than a newspaper because it has a life beyond when you read it, because you go back, you reference it, you look at it later, having it around has meaning. But with newspapers and other disposable periodicals, you you don't have that same interaction. It's true. Although we had a paper mache project that was due, and suddenly we realized that we had absolutely nothing for our paper mache project. And Oh, no. I know. I'm like, what will happen to the kids of the future? Uh Well, when you think about it, books have a lot of things going for them that newspapers don't, because even today, newsprint comes off in your hands, and it's hard to open it up when you sit down in an airplane in a tiny seat, and there's all sorts of issues, I think, that people have with newspaper that you don't quite have with books. So I think there will be a lot of physical artifacts that do stay around, but it'll be of the things you see in Etsy and maybe not as much mass-produced, as many mass-produced items. Well, we're, we're going to go down a list, a, a quick little list, because I've, okay. I've got some ideas. I'm so, ready. You ready? All right. I'm ready. Jewelry. It's kind of a fun one. Yes. Well, I think jewelry you have to bifurcate into two categories, and one of them is fine jewelry, and the other is fashion. And when you think about things that are fashionable, they're things that typically people wear for a year or two or three And I think that's a little more attuned to the life cycle of technology and advances in technology. But when I think about fine jewelry and I think about things that are artistic, there's an expectation when you buy it or you gift it that you'll be using it for decades to come. Whether that's true or not, that's a bit of the expectation. And it's part of the way that that industry is set up. You you talk about the phrase diamonds are forever and you look at the way that people interact with these items and the way that they build on top of it. They, they don't, I think that with fine jewelry, people don't want the literal picture. They want the positive or sometimes negative emotions that come along with it. It gets built in your mind and there's much more of an artistic piece to it. So, when I think about jewelry, that's how I, I think about that category. All right. That makes sense. What about this? This encompasses a lot of things, so we can break it down further, but building materials. Ah, uh, that's a good one. I think you start to see some things that happen with technology, such as chalkboard paint. So you start to see advances in technology where you can have paint that looks the same or whiteboard paint that allows you to write on it. So I think those are some things that happen with physical characteristics. On the other hand, if you look at the door, the door has stayed defiantly analog for a very long time. Hinges work well. The idea of being able to pull out a pin to be able to remove a door, these are things that work particularly well and I think will continue to work well for a very long time. I don't think we're going to see the Star Trek sliding doors 
that make funky noises every time they slide open anytime soon. Or worse, the depressing doors on uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> That's right. Now, at the same time, I think you will start to see companies like August and Locatron and Unikey and people that are building Internet-connected locks. I think there's a lot of utility to be had there. I think you'll start to see more and more of that. And there are so many doors, so many access points that that can be an enormous market. But to see the really mainstream adoption, I think you need to see about another five to ten years of reliability built into these devices mm -hmm. because there's nothing worse than getting locked out of your house because the batteries might have died in oh. a locking device. Like, I get locked out of my house all the time. Keys, batteries, connectivity, it all, it doesn't matter. So I'm like, whichever. What about right. what about things like I I feel like windows are kind of an interesting interesting thing to think about maybe not you know 3 years from now but maybe 10 years from now just because in some ways they're kind of like a screen opportunity I I don't know I have no idea what you're thinking there if anything at all Well there are some companies that have come along but it's a very difficult category anytime you start to put something physical in and you start to think about the costs of installation at least from a, a venture capitalist point of view, starts to get a little frightening because it starts to become capital intensive. They're difficult to install. Uh, you have to inform people and, and teach people about the benefits that you could have from new windows or building materials like that. One of the things I've done in my house is I've put on 3M protective coatings to reduce the UV that mm -hmm. comes into the house, both to protect art, and then also to help with heating and cooling bills. But that's something that you can apply after the fact. You, you can retrofit easily. And I think anything that's in material science is better suited to large companies than to startups. Got it. And you, in your, your post, you actually talked about furniture. So let's, let's talk about furniture. We also mentioned Ikea, and they're sticking charging stuff charging pads into their furniture. And I know I, I go on Kickstarter all the time and I see some really interesting furniture that has like USB cables built in. I think it depends in. on the half-life of furniture. I think when you're looking at a lot of items, the things that are best suited to the Internet of Things and where you'll see them first are where you're solving really clear problems that people have. So I think something like the Nest thermostat and being an early investor there, one of the things that we saw was you could go into a single point product connected to the internet and it could pay for itself within a year along with all the other benefits. When you look at something like a chair, I'm looking at a leather chair right now that might cost as much as five hundred, a thousand, two thousand dollars. My expectation is I'll left that chair for twenty or thirty years. And I think that a lot of these charging devices and things that people think about building into furniture in about four or five years is going to look like having an 8-track player in your car. Especially if they're an Apple charger. Uh... Yeah, and I think it goes back a lot. Like, when you look at the devices and everything that's around you, I think it's about mapping the life cycle of that product to the life cycle of technology. So if you have a product that you have an expectation that you'll use for anywhere from one to three years, that's where you'll start to see technology come in. Or if it's something where the advantages are just so overwhelmingly powerful, like what you see in a thermostat. But in items that you expect to have for 20, 30 years or longer, let alone 10 years, 
I don't think it's a place that you're going to see them be anything other than analog devices and backdrops for other products. So this will be our, our final question, our final product category. Clothing. Oh, clothing. That's a good one. Well, I'll ask you, how long do you keep most of your clothes for? We'll go with fashion versus fine clothing. It's it's a similar <laughs> it's a similar divide, maybe not as long as a diamond ring, but But I, I think in general clothing, if you wear it regularly, it'll wear out. You know, clothing when it's designed is only designed for thirty, forty, fifty washings before they really start to come apart in general. It it's true. And and you definitely when you go and there are things I buy that like my summer shirts and shorts, those will probably last me a summer, maybe two, but like a fine, like a suit or something like that, or if I'm going to buy something by a, a designer, I expect that to last me probably a decade because... I think it's an area, I think clothing is an area where you will see technology over time, but the price points have to get down to a point where if you incorporate it into the clothing itself, it has to be vanishingly inexpensive. So I think the only reason that you won't see it on a broad scale anytime soon is just the cost of the technology and the need to recharge. I think at the point that you're able to do energy scavenging and Wi-Fi only costs you a few pennies to add to a garment, then you might start to see that sort of thing. And I've had the experience with a, a shirt that I wore to South by Southwest out in your neck of the woods a few years ago that had a graphic equalizer on the front and it had batteries and it would actually react to the music at whatever venue I went to at South by Southwest, and it was a huge hit, loved wearing it. I think you'll start to see some of these things come into fashion, but it's an area where I think price points make it very difficult, unless you have a very unique reason that you're using it, such as fitness or, or some other purpose. Yeah, I think fitness, and I, I think also an interesting use case is things like health, like, you know, sun sun tracking, UV tracking is a really kind of interesting kind of example, especially in like kids' clothing. But when you look at something like that, then you ask whether it's better for it to be a highly effective state-of-the-art sensor that you clip onto the clothing that can survive or run through the wash if you forget to take it off, as opposed to something that you would add to every piece of clothing that, that the kids have that might not be as good a sensor. Well, in, in yeah, that is the question. But some of those some of those clips are very expensive, and I'm thinking a like a rash guard that I put on my kid every time they go out to the beach when I'm most concerned about it might be an interesting way to go. But I agree. We'll we'll see. But I think it'll be more with companies like Athos, where you see them building in measurements of your form and effectiveness when you work out, mm -hmm. and in areas where you have time and you're trying to make the most of your time and. It's, it's much more measurable. It's something that people will pay for and pay more for sooner. Yes, I certainly, I certainly don't need my everyday clothes telling me I'm slouching on the regular. Yeah. But one thing I would say across all these categories is part of the human condition is us picking up and manipulating and working with and touching and interacting with devices in our everyday lives. And so much of our world, I think, whether we feel it or not, is about creativity. It's do we decide to walk on this side of the street or that side of the street? Or what do we want to have for breakfast? Or how do we want to cook it? And what do we want to do? And I think art plays and creativity plays a much bigger part of our daily lives. And I think because of that, that's where you'll see the tension between Silicon Valley that wants to automate everything and connect everything to technology and 
areas where I think you'll see things stay analog for decades, if not centuries to come. And I think that's a wonderful topic that we could probably explore in a whole nother podcast, because I think actually some of this stuff opens up a lot of opportunities to be creative in completely different ways for people who want to explore that. Like I, I had a fun time building a, a pressure sensor into one of my chairs and tying it to some hue light bulbs. So when you sat in that chair and only that chair, the light above your head came on and it was silly, but it was kind of a fun party trick, and we dismantled well, it's it. Well, fun if it actually measures how much that person weighs, too, huh? No, no, that would be a terrible chair. No one wants that <laughs> chair. And then it displayed it above the refrigerator? Gosh, can you imagine? Oh, I can. <laughs> You're like, no one would visit me again. They'd be like, Stacy, I hate your house. It's mean. All right, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I loved that post. I think it's a must-read for everyone. I'll include it in the show notes. And thank you. Well, Stacy, thanks for having me on the show. It's been a great conversation. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week on the Internet of Things podcast.